Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today I have a special guest, Hugh Campbell from GP Bullhound. GP Bullhound is an advisory firm here based in London with offices in Berlin and other locations. One of the things that we want to cover today is M&A for startups. So with that, Hugh, let's start with your background. Where did you study and what did you study? So I studied at Oxford University and I studied physiology, psychology and philosophy, obviously a very clear path to investment banking. So when you graduated, was it, was it like everybody else was saying, hey, I want to go into investment banking, let's do that too? Or was it, did yeah. something happen during your education that you're like, you know, I want to go into, because I know you went to, to Citibank. Um, so how did that happen? So my dad was an academic at Manchester Business School. So although I didn't study economics or uh, anything to do with business, it was always part of our family life. And my parents have always had a family business, uh, which is in medical education. And so I guess... Moving into economics and finance and business was a natural progression for me, albeit totally different from my degree. Hmm. Excellent. So walk us through that first job. What was that like? I know that interviews for investment banks can be quite onerous. So what was that like uh, interviewing for City? Well, I, when I was thinking about what to do, I was, uh, my main desire was to move to London. Yeah. Um, from Manchester and moving to London was like a Dick Whittington moment. And so I applied for consultancies and I applied for investment banks like any good Oxford undergraduate. Uh, and I got one offer, which was from Citibank. So I accepted it and it was great. I mean, mm. fortunately at that time, the investment banks had fantastic graduate training programs. Mm. And so I joined a training program at City for two years. They moved me across the bank, which was a wonderful experience. Mm. Uh, and no sooner had I been trained up than I moved to Goldman Sachs. Excellent. Well, with your graduation and your first job taking place in that sort of mid '90s, prior to the bubble popping in '99, what was that like? Did you? I mean, was was um, were you part of that wave? Were you part of that sort of huge uh, amount of M&A and, and huge rounds? Yeah. Well, I was I was focused more on the automotive industry than the technology industry, actually. So, uh, particularly when I was writing research at Goldman's, I could see the energy and the money that was being made in the technology sector. I mean, mm -hmm. Goldman's was IPOing every tech company in Europe that they could get their hands mm -hmm. on. Uh, and I could see my colleagues enjoying that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there came an opportunity for me to leave Goldman's just after they themselves IPO'd. Mm -hmm. uh, and it looked very obvious that we should move and take the skills into the technology sector, which of course promptly crashed. Well, it sounds to me that it was a great opportunity to start what is now GP Bullhound. And from what you were telling me earlier, it started in Shoreditch, where we're actually recording this. So it's interesting. Maybe tell us, you know, as a founder, in many ways, this is great to interview you because we, we like to interview founders and mm. you're a founder of an investment bank. And it'd be great to hear the story of how you did that. What was it like? What was the risk of leaving, you know, a relatively well-known job? And in this case, you, know, you told me how. But what was that like before, before now what the brand is? Yeah, I mean... When you leave a secure job, uh, there's always a risk. I mean, everybody that's listening to this as founders understands that. And uh, for me, I could have stayed at Goldman's. My three co-founders also had great investment banking jobs. Uh, but we were young. You know, we were in our 20s when we started GP Bullhound. Uh, and we didn't, we weren't married. We didn't have kids. We didn't have mortgages. So uh, we were pretty footloose and fancy free in that sense. And that allowed us to take a risk without really taking a big risk. Uh, and so we started up just off Brick Lane, actually a bit further east from here. Uh, at the time, you know, Brick Lane and the whole of that area was bubbling along and brewing with startups. Uh, it was only 
eight years later that David Cameron came knocking on the door and, and created what Shoreditch is today. But mm. if you roll back the clock 15, 16 years, it, it was still very much a vibrant place for young companies. Mm. So what was, what was it like back in London in, in those days in terms of the, the funding ecosystem, how many funds? And maybe this is also a good opportunity to talk a little bit about what an advisor firm does, like what, what yeah. does it, what's it involved? Because you must have had, you know, that, that sort of inevitable challenge that all founders have, which is my first sales gig. Like who did yeah. you, who did you, who was your first client? And you, and you probably still remember them. Yeah. So the, the funding community, in fact, the whole of the fabric of the European tech ecosystem has developed tremendously in the last mm-hmm. decade. I mean, when we started, you know, the London funds just about knew each other. Mm-hmm. There was pretty much no chance that they knew the funds in Berlin and the Berlin entrepreneurs didn't know the entrepreneurs in Stockholm and mm. the Stockholm tech lawyers didn't know the tech lawyers in Paris. I mean, it, it was a set of different islands. Mm. Uh, and actually, we created an event called Investor All-Stars, which you may well have been to. Yeah. Uh, and Investor All-Stars was created in 2002 to stick everybody together for the first time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 14 years later, it's still operating and still trying to connect people together. So there was a tremendous opportunity just to, a bit like a neural network where the power is in the nodes, just yeah. to connect everybody together. And that in itself was a, was a challenge in the first five years. Yeah. And then if I think back to our first clients, I mean, uh, we, if I think carefully now, we, um, we were pretty young and finance is quite an old person's game. I mean, it's like serious and suits and ties and yeah. you know, people giving you money. And For those listening, uh, he was not wearing a tie at the moment, but he's wearing a suit. And it's a very <laughs> nice suit. I remember that we bought some glasses to make ourselves look older when we went in to pitch nice. for business. Goodness. And then my hair fell out, so I didn't have that problem anymore. <laughs> Uh, so I think our first client was actually an incubator called Gorilla Park. And Gorilla Park had a portfolio of 20 companies. Half of them were going bust. Uh, the five of them were okay, and there were five that were great. And we were responsible for helping the five that were great to raise money. Mm. And so we, we raised money for a business called Skinkers. And we raised uh, money for Mateo. a business called, that's right, for Vibrant Media, which has gone on to be a tremendous success yeah. in the ad tech space. Uh, and Natural Motion, mm. which was mm. sold to Zynga for yeah. $400 million. Um, you know, it takes a while, though. All these businesses take 10 years to build. So you have to be patient. Yeah. So maybe you can walk us through what the role of, of an advisor firm. I mean, clearly, with your first client, you probably went way over what you would do mm. today or anybody would do, I guess. But what, what is the role of a, of a firm um, in both with relations to the buy, acquire or buyer or to the, the seller or the startup yeah. or the founder, just to give us a little bit of a marker of what, what people yeah. should expect? So one of the big challenges for young companies, of course, is raising money and ultimately exiting mm. their business. I mean, a, a Mark Zuckerberg who stays on that journey for 10 years or a lifetime is pretty unusual. Um, so an advisor really helps the entrepreneur navigate a quite uncertain process. I mean, for GP Bullhound now, we've, we've done 200 fundraising mandates since we started. Mm-hmm. Most entrepreneurs will have never done one before. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we can help them uh, prepare the business properly. So mm-hmm. that's telling the story in an attractive way. 
we can help them deal with any concerns and issues around the corporate structure and the option schemes and you know, the contracts and make sure that the business is properly packaged and ready for a new investor to do due diligence. So that's the first bit, that's preparation. Yeah. The second bit is marketing the deal. Uh, so we have a tremendous network of relationships with technology investors. Some of them might be high net worth individuals, some of them might be family offices, sovereign wealth funds, and some of them might be pre-IPO funds that dip into early stage tech from time to time. And then of course you have the usual venture capital suspects. Mm -hmm. So what an advisor like GP Bullhound can do is to open your mind to the possibilities and the types of investor that exist out there. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, but ultimately get you in front of them. Right. Get you 10, 20, 30 pitches, whether that's here in Europe uh, or whether that's in the US. Yeah. And increasingly, we open our office in Hong Kong in January. So we'll be helping European entrepreneurs access capital out in Asia as well. Excellent. So that second piece is all about marketing the deal. Mm -hmm. And then the final phase is closing the deal. Mm -hmm. And this is a very intense and stressful phase for the, for the founder. Uh, it's about negotiating the valuation of the business. It's about negotiating their own personal package, mm -hmm. what they're being paid, what their option scheme should be. And it's politely bullying the lawyers mm -hmm. and the accountants and the technology due diligence providers to make sure that this deal gets done quickly. But with the amount of funds today that are doing some of these as part of their duties to the founders, what kind of companies do you guys focus on that, that merit that level of heavy lifting? Is it, are we talking about like large series B raises or raises that involve sovereign wealth funds or what we're talking about large quantums or it's a specific type of thing with specific sectors or specific, just to sort of help yeah. qualify for the listeners. So when we started, we were doing series A fundraising. Um, and nowadays, I mean, we're 70 people, so the economics of raising one or two million pounds doesn't really work for a firm of our size. So now we're doing large growth equity rounds, so typically $20 million and above. So businesses that have proven out the, the model, mm -hmm. the revenue works, and that there is a site on profitability. Right. In many cases, the businesses are not profitable that we work with, yeah. uh, but they want to raise significant capital. And in many cases, it's to expand internationally. Yeah. And then when it comes to the other side of so the, the firm's services, what, what other elements are part of the GP Bullhound offering? When we started the business, we wanted to put the entrepreneur in the heart of everything that we do. And so what we wanted to build was a, an advisory firm that helps entrepreneurs through their whole journey. And so we do four things at the business today uh, that all kind of interrelate. The first is that we write research and run events, as you know. Yeah. I mean, we publish seminal research around the European unicorns, which has been published just recently. Uh, every six months, we probably produce one or two pieces of research, a bit like Gartner. Mm -hmm. And then we run uh, tons of events for entrepreneurs and investors. We probably have 4,000 people mm -hmm. through our events program every year. So that's really about helping the fabric of the European tech community grow and develop. Yeah. The second thing we've done, we do, which we've talked about is fundraising. Yeah. Uh, the third piece is that we help entrepreneurs sell their business. Uh, and the final piece of the puzzle is that we have a fund yeah. called Sidecar, yeah. uh, which we raised uh, and, and developed in 2008. And what that does is it looks entrepreneurs in the eye and it says, listen, we're not just here to do a quick deal and make a quick fee. We're going to put some of our money in behind you if that's what you want. 
The third option you talked about, which was helping companies sell, there's several elements of that that maybe we should try to explore. Uh, first of all is sharing a little bit of the stats that you might have about how the mergers and acquisition market looks like in Europe versus the U.S., and, and just sort of helping us understand what are the challenges of, of being based here as a startup versus in the Valley. As you may have well have read, the IPO markets, both in the US and in Europe for tech companies, is down a lot this year, um, particularly in enterprise software. So really, the options for, for getting out for investors and for founders is reliant on M&A right now. And, and we should split that into two groups, really. You have trade buyers. So these are strategics like a Dell or a Microsoft or Facebook. And then you have private equity buyers. And increasingly, the private equity community are becoming tech savvy and are becoming a real competitive force for trade buyers, which, of course, for entrepreneurs is great because the last thing you want is just to have one offer from one trade buyer. You know, you really want two or three offers. And it's nice if it comes from different types of buyers, so private equity versus M&A, and from different regions in the world. Because who's to say you know, what the valuation is of, uh, of your business? Uh, I mean, just look at the valuation achieved by DeepMind. Mm. I mean, it's, uh, it's so- not something you could ever put in a spreadsheet. And so by uh, ensuring you get two or three offers, and when you come to sell, you'll be safe in the comfort that you've sold at the best mm. possible price. So maybe let's explore a little bit more about one of the buyers that you mentioned that probably is less traditional to talk about, which is private equity. For those that are not familiar with it, can you help us understand what are the dynamics of what a private equity firm looks for in a startup? I mean, one assumption is that it is cash flow positive, so they can do financial engineering, but perhaps not. And maybe it's just to help dispel some of the myths that we might have about private equity, the frequency of it, the, the amount and the types of businesses they're attracted to. Yeah. So, so let's just th- think a bit about definitions and the funding ladder. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you have business angels and seed funds. Then you have venture capital funds and you have this new group that's developed, the growth equity funds. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you have private equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often the media will lump all of that as private equity, as you know, and it's very confusing mm-hmm. for, for many of the general public. But private equity in the world I live in is typically investing in profitable businesses, mm-hmm. or at least businesses which may be profitable in 12 months' time. Uh, and what we found in Europe is that historically these private equity funds have been generalists. So one one day they'd invest in a, in a software business, the next day they'd invest in a in a manufacturing business, then they'd invest in a cycling business. And I mean, they're totally generalist, a, mm-hmm. a building manufacturer. And uh, what we find now is that that group of investors are increasingly, what I would say, tech literate. Mm-hmm. They're trying to educate themselves to start to pay the multiples, uh, typically on profit, but from time to time, just on revenues that the founders are used to getting from the trade buyers. But mm-hmm. it's a long journey. Um, but you are starting to find, if you take in the UK a fund like Inflection, they now have a dedicated tech person in their team and they're specifically working with the portfolio companies to bring them up to speed in tech. And they've just raised a smaller fund to go after tech in a much more serious way. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, it's a new dawn for European technology companies now that you have large amounts of capital in private equity seeking a home in you know, the fastest growing sector we have in the world. Now, one of the things that's not clear to me is 
how these relationships form. Because one of the things that um, typically precedes a, a strategic buyer buying a startup is some form of commercial relationship. You know, they might be doing business together already, or they might see the business itself as competitive to the future of, of, of the company. Maybe there's competing user bases. And so there is some visibility both from the, the buyer and, and the seller. But when it comes to private equity, those relationships are, are less you know, organic. They're not going to meet on the street. They're not going to meet through the normal course of business. What? How do you see startups that have successfully sold to private equity? How do they establish those relationships? Is it inbound? Is it outbound? Is it through through you? Is it, how does that happen? I mean, I think advisors do have a role to play here, but it's only a small one. Yeah. Uh, I think it's very important as a founder that you keep really up to date with a group of investors. And you find time every week to meet with an investor that you've perhaps not met before. Mm. I mean, it feels like an expensive uh, effort, you know, and some may argue a waste of time. But in order to secure a future funding round, as you say, it's better if they know you and they've heard the story. And guess what? You've delivered six months later, 12 months later, two years later. Mm. And so the trust that you develop in a trade deal Mm. through having a commercial partnership You have to build up with private equity or venture capital funds over time. Mm. So I'd encourage founders to build a a hit list of funds and relationships and make sure that they're on the press releases, that they're going to call every quarter or every six months Mm. and are just kept up to speed. Mm. But I would argue that the private equity industry that is interested in tech companies is probably where the investor all-stars was invented, where it was a lack of, of cohesion, a lack of transparency. And thus, who invented this event to bring the venture capital community together? Is there a need for a private equity event of the same type so that founders can more efficiently meet these funds? Because I don't know, for example, how I would bring together all the heads of private equity firms that would be interested in tech startups without having to to perhaps rely on somebody like yourself to bring them together. I mean, I I do think we we have to be a little bit careful here because... For start, startups would be a stretch for most private equity firms mm-hmm. because my definition of a startup would be that it's still some way from profitability. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, entrepreneurs don't want to waste their time either courting a fund that's still very much out of reach. Yeah. Uh, what we've been trying to do with Investor All-Stars is create categories and awards to drive the more animated and interested private equity firms into attending that very same event mm. so that they can mix with entrepreneurs, but they can also mix with the funds that are at a different layer on the ladder, mm. different rung on the ladder. Hmm. And would you say, I mean, going down the path of the private equity, um, I don't have visibility on, on the stats, but what would you say the split is currently in, or maybe growth rates, if any, even if it's sort of anecdotal, uh, of growth of private equity as an M&A path versus trade sales? Is it like 10% of? Yeah, I I would be, I mean, I've been very surprised over the last two years about how competitive private equity is relative to trade. Because you could always argue, I mean, the textbooks would say that a strategic buyer should always pay more than Mm -hmm. a private equity firm because they can drive synergies out of the acquisition. However, there's such a wall of capital in European private equity funds right now that they're competing very aggressively for the right type of deal. At the end of the day, what's unclear to founders is, do I need to move to the Valley to be able to establish the only possible path for an exit? And so this new emerging category of buyers in Europe, the private equity buyers, seems like a natural relationship to develop but I think it's that it's always that ambiguity as to how that relationship can develop when it's not in commercial alignment and and so maybe one of the things that we can 
can discuss a little further is what are the areas of, of influence that organizations such as ours can do to bring together more of, of these kinds of organizations to the table? Particularly when you said a second ago that you know the startups that we are dealing with here are companies that are way too early for these, these buyers. But um, whereas a strategic buyer would have somebody who is keeping a pulse on this, it doesn't seem like private equity buyers do. And, and I mean, maybe brainstorming a couple of ideas there in terms of things that have worked or initiatives or, or the individuals that might bring it together. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the key is for the, if you want to build relationships with the private equity community, it's twofold. One is that they need to be educated about the sector. Uh, and that takes a little bit of time and investment. So, you know, if SeedCamp ran teach-ins around particular areas for private equity firms, so, you know, what are the key metrics and dynamics in SaaS when looking at a SaaS business? Now that might get a really interesting audience because remember these are generalists or, you know, when you're looking at a consumer internet proposition, what should the customer acquisition cost be or what's the lifetime value of a typical e-commerce business or try to help them understand the underlying metrics that mm. are driving successful businesses in perhaps different slithers mm. of technology. So if any of you that are listening are interested in helping us out to do that, and I think I can count on you support on doing that, uh, feel free to get in touch. Let's talk a little bit about the IPO market. You mentioned that it's down, um, and it's one that has always been kind of elusive anyway in, in Europe. And maybe you can help us understand why the IPO market for startups has always been something that's been relatively elusive for European startups versus US ones. Yeah, I mean, I think we just have a capital markets system in Europe. And I mean, when we think about that, it's really London and Frankfurt. And there is a bit in Paris, of course, and a bit in Stockholm that's ultimately more conservative. I mean, we are more conservative investors as a, as a group in Europe than the US. And that follows all the way through our behavior and IPO through to private equity, venture, and down to angels. You know, we, we tend to be very good at financial structuring in Europe. We have a tremendous heritage and history of being great at accounting and great at managing financial risk and debt and all of these things. But it takes a generation for that to evolve and develop into taking more operational, more gut instinct type risk. And investment. So I think there's an underlying DNA in Europe that we're working to solve, but will take time. Uh, and then I also think that the institutions here in Europe haven't seen the huge successes that they've seen in the US. You know, we haven't had a, a Google or a Facebook, you know, uh, or a Microsoft or an Apple. You know, we'll, the best we've got is SAP, which has been tremendous. And of course, we've had Arm and Sage and and then you start to run out of, of a list, whereas in the US you have a, a long, long list. So I think a lot of it's about uh, making sure that institutions realize that there is significant money to be made by backing these earlier stage companies. Mm. And so what you tend to find is institutional investors go with the tech cycle. So they're very overexcited mm. in, in the peaks and then they disappear out from funding IPOs for three or four years, and then they come back again in strength. Um, so I think that's the other thing. But I would, I would also say, however, that we are finding that the institutional market is becoming much better educated. So there have been a large number of European tech IPOs in the last three years. And in the UK, we've had Autotrader, 
She's been a tremendous success. I mean, you've hard, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find a better marketplace in the whole world. Uh, we've had AO and Boohoo on the e-commerce side. Uh, Boohoo's recovered significantly from uh, the softening they've had in the share price. And then in continental Europe, we've had Zalando, we've had Rocket Internet. I mean, there's a, a bunch of businesses now which are listed that are pure play tech specialists, whether that's on the e-commerce end or more on the B2B end. So it's improving, it sounds like. It sounds like it's an evolution, but it will take time. Uh, to talk about time, one of the things that unlocked a lot of capital early on here in the UK was the SEIS and EIS regulation, which enabled a lot of angel investors to take tax incentives uh, for, for early stage companies. Is there anything that would bias and speed up that time to get to that more mature IPO market, to get those companies? You know, it takes such a long time to build mm -hmm. those kinds of empire type companies that, you know, we're, we're not going to see them for a while unless we start increasing the amount of M&A that happens uh, so that there is a refresh of founders who come back with some capital and then re recreate some of their success. What ideas do you have, or, or maybe there maybe there are some um, equivalent regulations that could be used to incentivize yeah. large corporates? So, so I've been reading a lot about uh, the research that Sherry Kutu's been doing with scale-ups, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm a big, big believer in that. So, so whilst we have a very strong system, at least in the UK, as you say, for angel investing and providing tax breaks for private individuals to fund startups, that's great. So raising a million pounds, I mean, that shouldn't be too difficult for mm. a, for smart founders, given the tax breaks that are around. I think the big challenge and where I think government policy can have an effect is in helping businesses that are at 10 or 15 people get to 100 or 1000 people. Mm. And that's what the scale up uh, initiative is all about. And so what can councils and governments do there? Well, what they can do is they can open up their purchasing departments mm -hmm. to purchase from, in inverted commas, riskier, younger businesses. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot in the US, you know, where government departments, government departments are forced to buy 25% of everything from younger, more dynamic businesses. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we need policy like that that could be introduced. And the second thing I would say is that I'm always a bit depressed when I look at the way in which government money for enterprise, particularly in local councils in Manchester or otherwise, is spent. And most of it's spent on business creation. So going from zero to one person or mm -hmm. zero to two people, mm -hmm. because they're very, very based, they're very much based on company creation. So Manchester Council would say, we've created a thousand companies last year. Mm -hmm. That's the metric which they're judged by. And actually that, that isn't what they should be judged by. What they should be doing is taking that money and mentoring and helping the founder of a business that's got 10 people go to a hundred or a thousand. That's where we can have tremendous economic impact. So it's perhaps not about having more government money. It's about a reallocation, perhaps from startups, which I know is the, bedrock of seed camp to to scale-ups. Mm. And then what are the top three challenges that you've seen buyers have uh, when they're evaluating a company? Because maybe we can also look at it from that point of view as saying, if if we can fix those top three challenges, whether they be you know local offices here so that mm. when they acquire, they have a place to put the developers, so to speak. What are the top three challenges you've seen on every deal that you've done that almost always are going to flare up? So one of the bit, one of the big things in an M&A deal is, is trust. Mm -hmm. you know, the buyer is always worried that they're not buying what they've been told. Yeah. 
So one of the first things is that you need to be well prepared Mm -hmm. so that when the buyer comes looking and they start to peel the onion, uh, what they find is what you've told them Mm -hmm. and that you know what's in there. You know what these supplier contracts say. You know whether there's a a change of consent clause on your customer contracts. You know, you're in control of that. So Mm -hmm. I think educating founders to do that boring admin Mm -hmm. piece is important and to do it as they go along. Mm -hmm. You know, create a Dropbox folder with a, you know, make sure everything gets saved in there. It's super boring, but, but if you're trying to build trust, that's an important part of it. The second piece is selling your company can take three, six, 12 months. So it can take a long time. So make sure as part of building trust that you deliver what you tell them in the first meeting. So if you say, I'm going to do two million pounds of revenue this year, by the time you complete this deal, you'll have needed to deliver two million pounds of revenue. And if you only deliver one, then they're probably not going to transact. And if they do transact, they're going to renegotiate the deal. So think very carefully about the numbers that you communicate because they're the numbers that you'll be hung on. So I think that's a, a second important piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then perhaps the third piece is, uh, is to try and establish, and we spoke about this a bit earlier, a relationship with the buyer community mm-hmm. early. So one of the biggest problems we have is that founders come to us and they say, I've decided I want to sell my business mm-hmm. and I want to sell it you know, by the end of the tax year. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're already in December, the tax year is in April. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very difficult job both for an advisor, for the whole company, particularly if it's not prepared. So what I would like to see is the boards of young businesses create time and space to think tactically about the exit two, three, four years beforehand and put budget aside to make sure that you're speaking at the right conferences, that your your trade shows are next to the Microsoft uh, stand, that you know, you're in the right trade press so that you become a known entity within the little area of technology that you're focused on. So I would say those are the three areas. Communicate and raise your profile early. Make sure that you deliver the numbers that you talk about in those first meetings and be prepared. Mm. But like with, a Cub Scout. With the, with the be prepared, and which involves a lot of relationship building, obviously looking outside of your home market is probably a quite important thing to do. And in that spirit, you guys just launched uh, about three years ago a Berlin office and maybe you can share a little bit about how you help founders through the multiple offices. You mentioned Hong Kong earlier. How does how do you guys help, and and what do you see in happening in Berlin right now in terms of M and A? And I know that you mentioned that it's it's doing really well. So maybe you can just walk us through. Yeah, I mean the German market. I mean everybody knows it's the largest economy in Europe, but the technology scene there is developing at a tremendous pace. I mean Berlin is our fastest growing office. You know we're generating more revenue. You know it's the fastest growing revenue division in the group today you know we're actively trying to hire into the office there and uh, Berlin in particular has a very young and very powerful group of technology entrepreneurs and what you're finding is that the people that have made it are doing one of two things either they're starting another business or they're taking the money from their exit and they're recycling it back into the next generation mm-hmm. and that's really nice to see and you're also finding in Berlin that there's a it's a uh, the cost of living is relatively low, mm. uh, you know, relative to other city, you know, capital cities, certainly relative to London. And you have a tremendous amount of programming talent coming to Berlin from Southern Europe, but also from Eastern Europe. Mm. Um, so we're really excited about Berlin. And that's despite the fact that they don't have the tax breaks mm. 
mm. that you talked about earlier that we have in the UK of of the of EIS. I was there in Berlin yesterday talking to founders and they were saying, no, we do raise money from angels. And I was saying, oh, well, that's great. What sort of tax breaks do they get? Nothing. Mm. So I think there's still a lot to be done in Germany to incentivize that that uh, private investment community to, to develop. Mm. And then to your, I guess, first point was around this uh, network of offices that we've built. Mm. Uh, what we've tried to do is to make sure that we're, we're close to where the technology buyers and where the technology investors are. And in Europe today, of course, in 2000, it was London and, and not really anywhere else, but that's developed significantly. So we opened up in Stockholm. There's a very vibrant uh, company creation scene there now, obviously with Spotify and SoundCloud in particular, but many others. Uh, then we opened in Berlin, uh, which we discussed. We've just opened an office in Paris. And interestingly, in the UK, uh, which is the most active tech market in Europe, it isn't all about London. I mean, uh, I just opened the office in Manchester uh, again two years ago, and we're doing tremendous entrepreneurs and tremendous companies that are being built not just in London anymore. So I think the last 10 years for us has been about recognizing that technology companies are built everywhere in Europe, mm -hmm. not just in the capital cities. Yeah, and it's a challenge for founders now. It's developing relationships across all those key geographies. Just maybe the last question before we get your book recommendation. You know, there's always debates at board meetings about if a company's founded in London, which is the most obvious next European country or the US to expand into. What has been your experience in terms of seeing, you know, many companies in terms of, and I know it varies by sector and all that stuff, but is there a, um, a traditional path that you've seen that tends to work better, like UK next market, Germany or UK next uh, market, yeah. um, uh, Paris or, or, or Spain or Scandinavia, and then the US or straight to the US? Just curious. So, so I think it depends a bit by sector because technology is a broad church of many different industries. Yeah. I mean, you know, what has computer games got in common with enterprise software, you know, relative to Snapchat? I mean, yeah. these are all very different worlds. So to generalize a little bit, if you look at enterprise software, yeah. the next market should be the US. Yeah. You know, so you start in, in Europe, some, you know, like London or Amsterdam, then the next market should be the US. And you probably need to do that by taking one of the founders and moving them there. Yeah. Uh, if you look at e-commerce, I would say, you know, uh, e and perhaps even ad tech, you can move more easily into Europe than mm. you can. And those markets are significant. So we see a lot of e-commerce businesses you know, moving into continental Europe um, from the UK as a first step, whether that's ge typically Germany and mm. France. I mean, the, it tends to be the northern European economies that, that are the next places to go outside of uh, outside of the UK. Mm. Excellent. Well, we always like to end with uh, some sort of plug. And uh, in this case, I had asked you earlier what your book recommendation was and, and maybe just for founders who you think would benefit from it. Yeah, so so I was lucky enough to attend the London Business School event. It must be five or six years ago. And there's a, it may still be there, I don't know, but there was a, a professor called Professor Mullins yeah. who, uh, who teaches on the entrepreneurship program there. And he gave a tremendous speech. And I think he's written a number of books, but the one that I've read is called The New Business Road Test. Mm. And it's a framework. Uh, it's a dip into, dip, it, dip out of sort of book. Uh, and it's a framework to help founders think about whether their idea is any good mm. before they remortgage their property mm. or borrow money from their granny or 
you know, there's a lot of risk in starting a, a new technology venture and the new business road test is a good way of just sense checking whether you're on the right path. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Hugh, and, and we'll keep you posted on any feedback we get. Thanks again. Bye.